Chapter Four, Section One of *The Promise of American Life* by Herbert Crawley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by the Progressing America Project. Chapter Four, Section One. Slavery and American Nationality. Both the Whig and the Democratic parties betrayed the insufficiency of their ideas by their behavior towards the problem of slavery. Hitherto I have refrained from comment on the effect which the institution of slavery was coming to have upon American politics, because the increasing importance of slavery, and of the resulting anti-slavery agitation, demand for the purpose of this book special consideration. Such a consideration must now be undertaken. The bitter personal and partisan controversies of the Whigs and the Democrats were terminated by the appearance of a radical and a perilous issue, and in the settlement of this question, the principles of both these parties, in the manner in which they had been applied, were of no vital assistance. The issue was created by the legal existence in the United States of an essentially undemocratic institution. The United States was a democracy, and however much or little this phrase means, it certainly excludes any ownership of one man by another. Yet this was just what the Constitution sanctioned. Its makers had been confronted by the legal existence of slavery in nearly all of the constituent states, and a refusal to recognize the institution would have resulted in the failure of the whole scheme of constitutional legislation. Consequently, they did not seek to forbid Negro servitude, and inasmuch as it seemed at the time to be on the road to extinction through the action of natural causes, the makers of the Constitution had a good excuse for refusing to sacrifice their whole project to the abolition of slavery and in throwing thereby upon the future the burden of dealing with it in some more radical and consistent way later however it came to pass that slavery instead of being gradually extinguished by economic causes was fastened thereby more firmly than ever upon one section of the country the whole agricultural political and social life of the south became dominated by the existence of negro slavery and the problem of reconciling the expansion of such an institution with the logic of our national idea was bound to become critical our country was committed by every consideration of national honor and moral integrity to make its institutions thoroughly democratic and it could not continue to permit the aggressive legal existence of human servitude without degenerating into a glaring example of political and moral hypocrisy the two leading political parties deliberately and persistently sought to evade the issue. The Western pioneers were so fascinated with the vision of millions of pale-faced Democrats leading free and prosperous lives, as the reward for virtuously taking care of their own business, that the constitutional existence of Negro slavery did not in the least discommode them. Disunionism they detested, and would fight to the end but to waste valuable time in bothering about a perplexing and an apparently irremediable political problem was in their eyes the worst kind of economy they were too optimistic and too superficial to anticipate any serious trouble in the promised land of america and they were so habituated to inconsistent and irresponsible political thinking that they attached no importance to the moral and intellectual turpitude implied by the existence of slavery in a democratic nation the responsibility of the Whigs for evading the issue is more serious than that of the Democrats. Their leaders were the trained political thinkers of their generation. They were committed to the logic of their party platform to protect the integrity of American national life and to consolidate its organization. But the Whigs, almost as much as the Democrats, refused to take seriously the legal existence of slavery.
they shirked the problem whenever they could and for as long as they could and they looked upon the men who persisted in raising it aloft as perverse fomenters of discord and trouble the truth is of course that both of the dominant parties were merely representing the prevailing attitude toward slavery of american public opinion that attitude was characterized chiefly by moral and intellectual cowardice throughout the whole of the middle period the increasing importance of negro servitude was the ghost in the house of the american democracy the good americans of the day sought to exercise the ghost by many amiable devices sometimes they would try to lock him up in a cupboard sometimes they would offer him a soothing bribe more often they would be content with shutting their eyes and pretending that he was not present but in proportion as he was kindly treated he persisted in intruding until finally they were obliged to face the alternative either of giving him possession of the house or taking possession of it themselves foreign commentators on american history have declared that a peaceable solution of the slavery question was not beyond the power of wise and patriotic statesmanship this may or may not be true no solution of the problem could have been at once final and peaceable unless it provided for the ultimate extinction of slavery without any violation of the constitutional rights of the southern states and it may well be that the southern planters could never have been argued or persuaded into abolishing an institution which they eventually came to believe was a righteous method of dealing with an inferior race nobody can assert with any confidence that they could have been brought by candid courageous and just negotiation and discussion into a reasonable frame of mind but what we do know and can assert is that during the three decades from eighteen twenty to eighteen fifty the national political leaders made absolutely no attempt to deal resolutely courageously or candidly with the question on those occasions when it would come to the surface they contended themselves and public opinion with meaningless compromises it would have been well enough to frame compromises suited to the immediate occasion provided the problem of ultimately extinguishing slavery without rending the union had been kept persistently on the surface of political discussion but the object of these compromises was not to cure the disease but merely to allay its symptoms they would not admit that slavery was a disease and in the end this habit of systematic drifting and shirking on the part of moderate and sensible men threw the national responsibility upon abolitionist extremists in whose hands the issue took such a distorted emphasis that gradually a peaceable preservation of american national integrity became impossible the problem of slavery was admirably designed to bring out the confusion of ideas and the inconsistency resident in the traditional american political system the groundwork of that system consisted as we have seen in the alliance between democracy as formulated in the jeffersonian creed and american nationality as embodied in the constitutional union and the two dominant political parties of the middle period the whigs and the jacksonian democrats both believed in the necessity of such an alliance but negro slavery just in so far as it became an issue tended to make the alliance precarious the national organization embodied in the constitution authorized not only the existence of negro slavery but its indefinite expansion american democracy on the other hand as embodied in the declaration of independence and in the spirit and letter of the jeffersonian creed was hostile from certain points of view to the institution of negro slavery loyalty to the constitution meant disloyalty to democracy and an active interest in the triumph of democracy seemed to bring with it the condemnation of the constitution what then was a good american to do who was at once a convinced democrat and a loyal unionist 
the ordinary answer to this question was of course expressed in the behavior of public opinion during the middle period the thing to do was to shut your eyes to the inconsistency denounce anybody who insisted on it as unpatriotic and then hold on tight to both horns of the dilemma men of high intelligence who really loved their country and believed in the democratic idea persisted in this attitude whose ablest and most distinguished representative was daniel webster he is usually considered as the most eloquent and effective expositor of american nationalism who played an important part during the middle period and unquestionably he came nearer to thinking nationally than did any american statesman of his generation he defended the union against the nullifiers as decisively in one way as jackson did in another jackson flourished his sword while webster taught american public opinion to consider the union as the core and the crown of the american political system his services in giving the union a more impressive place in the american political imagination can scarcely be overestimated had the other whig leaders joined him in refusing to compromise with the nullifiers and in strengthening by legislation the federal government as an expression of an indestructible american national unity a precedent might have been established which would have increased the difficulty of a subsequent secessionist outbreak but henry clay believed in compromises particularly when his own name was attached to them as the very substance of a national american policy and webster was too much of a presidential candidate to travel very far on a lonely path moreover there was a fundamental weakness in webster's own position which was gradually revealed as the slavery crisis became acute he could be bold and resolute when defending a nationalistic interpretation of the constitution against the nullifiers or the abolitionists but when the slaveholders themselves became aggressive in policy and separatist in spirit the courage of his convictions deserted him if an indubitably constitutional institution such as slavery could be used as an axe with which to hew at the trunk of the constitutional tree his whole theory of the american system was undermined and he could speak only halting and dubious words he was as much terrorized by the possible consequences of any candid and courageous dealing with the question as were the prosperous businessmen of the north and his luminous intelligence shed no light upon a question which evaded his constitutional theories terrified his will and clouded the radiance of his patriotic visions the patriotic formula of which webster was the ablest and most eloquent expositor was fairly torn to pieces by the clause of the problem of slavery the formula triumphantly affirmed the inseparable relation between individual liberty and the preservation of the federal union but obviously such a formula could have no validity from the point of view of a southerner the liberties which men most cherish are those which are guaranteed to them by law among which one of the most important from the southerner's point of view was the right to own negro bondsmen as soon as it began to appear that the perpetuation of the union threatened this right they were not to be placated by any glowing proclamation about the inseparability of liberty in general from an indestructible union from the standpoint of their own most cherished rights they could put up a very strong argument on behalf of disunion and they had as much of the spirit of the constitution on their side as had their opponents that instrument was intended not only to give legal form to the union of the american commonwealths and to the american people but also to guarantee certain specified rights and liberties if on the one hand negro slavery undermined the moral unity and consequently the political integrity of the american people and if on the other 
the South stubbornly insisted upon its legal right to property in Negroes, the difficulty ran too deep to be solved by peaceable constitutional means. The legal structure of American nationality became a house divided against itself, and either the national principle had to be sacrificed to the Constitution, or the Constitution to the national principle. The significance of the whole controversy does not become clear, until we modify Webster's formula about the inseparability of liberty and union, and affirm in its place, the inseparability of American nationality and American democracy. The union had come to mean something more to the Americans of the North than loyalty to the Constitution. It had come to mean devotion to a common national idea, the idea of democracy, and while the wiser among them did not want to destroy the Constitution for the benefit of democracy, they insisted that the Constitution should be officially stigmatized, as in this respect, an inadequate expression of the national idea. American democracy and American nationality are inseparably related, precisely because democracy means very much more than liberty or liberties, whether natural or legal, and nationality very much more than an indestructible legal association. Webster's formula counseled an evasion of the problem of slavery. From his point of view it was plainly insoluble. But an affirmation of an inseparable relationship between American nationality and American democracy would just as manifestly have demanded its candid, courageous, and persistent agitation. The slavery question, when it could no longer be avoided, gradually separated the American people into five different political parties or factions the abolitionists, the southern democrats, the northern democrats, the constitutional unionists, and the republicans. Each of these factions selected one of the several alternative methods of solution or evasion to which the problem of negro slavery could be reduced, and each deserves its special consideration. Of the five alternatives, the least substantial was that of the constitutional unionists. These well-meaning gentlemen, composed for the most part of former Whigs, persisted in asserting that the Constitution was capable of solving every political problem generated under its protection, and this assertion, in the teeth of the fact that the Union had been torn asunder by means of a constitutional controversy, had become merely an absurdity. Up to 1850 the position of such constitutional Unionists as Webster and Clay could be plausibly defended but after the failure of that final compromise it was plain that a man of any intellectual substance must seek support for his special interpretation of the constitution by means of a special interpretation of the national idea that slavery was constitutional nobody could deny any more than they could deny the constitutionality of anti-slavery agitation the real question to which the controversy had been reduced had become is slavery consistent with the principle which constitutes the basis of American national integrity, the principle of democracy? Each of the other four factions answered this question in a different way, and every one of these answers was derived from different aspects of the system of traditional American ideas. The abolitionists believed that a democratic state, which ignored the natural rights proclaimed by the Declaration of Independence, was a piece of organized political hypocrisy, worthy only of destruction. The Southerners believed that democracy meant, above all, the preservation of recognized constitutional rights in property of all kinds, and freedom from interference in the management of their local affairs. The Northern Democrats insisted just as strenuously as the South on local self-government, and tried to erect it into the constituent principle of democracy, but they were loyal to the Union and would not admit either that slavery could be nationalized or that secession had any legal justification. 
Finally, the Republicans believed with the abolitionists that slavery was wrong, while they believed with the Northern Democrats that the Union must be preserved, and it was their attempt to denationalize slavery as undemocratic, and at the same time to affirm the indestructibility of the Union, which proved in the end to be salutary. Surely never was there a more distressing example of confusion of thought in relation to a noble national theory. The traditional democratic system of ideas provoked fanatical activity on the part of the abolitionists as the defenders of natural rights, a kindred fanaticism in the southerners as the defenders of legal rights, and moral indifference and lethargy on the part of the northern democrat for the benefit of his own local interests. The behavior of all three factions was dictated by the worship of what was called liberty, and the word was as confidently and glibly used by Calhoun and Davis as it was by Garrison, Webster, and Douglas. The Western Democrat, and indeed the average American, thought of democratic liberty chiefly as individual freedom from legal discrimination and state interference in doing some kind of a business. The abolitionist was even more exclusively preoccupied with the liberty which the Constitution denied to the Negro. The Southerners thought only of the constitutional rights which the abolitionists wished to abolish, and the Republicans to restrict. Each of the contending parties had some justification in dwelling exclusively upon the legal or natural rights in which they were most interested, because the system of traditional American ideas provided no positive principle in relation to which these conflicting liberties could be classified or valued. It is in the nature of liberties and rights, abstractly considered, to be insubordinate and to conflict both with one another, and, perhaps, with the commonweal. If the chief purpose of a democratic political system is merely the preservation of such rights, democracy becomes an invitation to local, factional, and individual ambitions and purposes. On the other hand, if these constitutional and natural rights are considered a temporary philosophical or legal machinery, whereby a democratic society is to reach a higher moral and social consummation, and if the national organization is considered merely as an effective method of keeping the legal and moral machinery adjusted to the higher democratic purpose, then no individual or faction or section could claim the benefit of a democratic halo for its distracting purposes and ambitions. Instead of subordinating these conflicting rights and liberties to the national idea, and erecting the national organization into an effective instrument thereof, the national idea and organization was subordinated to individual, local, and factional ideas and interests. No one could or would recognize the constructive relation between the democratic purpose and the process of national organization and development. The men who would rend the national body in order to protect their property and Negro slaves could pretend to be as good Democrats as the men who would rend in order to give the Negro his liberty. And if either of these hostile factions had obtained its way, the same disastrous result would have been accomplished. American national integrity would have been destroyed, and slavery on American soil, in a form necessarily hostile to democracy, would have been perpetuated. End of chapter 4, section 1.